Hey guys, guess what time it is? It's creepy time. And that's exactly right. It is true crime and creepy time. Hey, creepers. Got a lot, a lot. Helena's here. Hey, Helena. We have a lot to talk about tonight in this case. So we want to... Mickey said, what rainy no surprise in the background? (laughs) No, we don't have a surprise tonight. You're surprised. Is me and this face because I am tired. So I performed yesterday at our talent show. Oh, did she perform? <laughs> but anyway, after yesterday's performance, my students wanted my autograph. They were like, Miss Gidry, you should be a movie star. I'm like, Yes, mm, you should. You think so? We went to school for that for five years. <laughs> So, yep, creepers, we got us a story tonight. It's it's great, but we're going to have to delve in pretty quick. We, I, I, I almost canceled this episode because of the events that happened um, this week, but I decided against it because we need to talk about the victims um, of this, this crime. The school shooting, uh, we went, we're going to go do a live sometime in the next couple of days. And we just want to talk about the victims. We, we don't want to talk about the asshat who did these crimes. We want to talk about the victims, um, two fourth grade teachers who lost their lives, which really, really hits home. Did you see that one of the Irma teachers? Garcia's husband had a fatal heart attack. So now her children are orphaned. People really die of a broken heart. And they were high school sweethearts, I think. It's, uh, I call it the June Carter scenario. Yes. That once a spouse dies, the other spouse dies just from heartbreak. Absolutely. Um, Our friend Chelsea, her grandparents were the same thing. I think her grandmother died first. Yeah. um, Didn't I hear about that poor man having a fatal heart attack? We were just talking about how... Today? today, and we were just talking about how some people die of a broken heart. I was saying that Chelsea's grandmother and grandfather, mm-hmm. I, I believe it's her grandmother and grandfather, but her grandmother died one week and two weeks later her grandpa died because he said he didn't want to live without I her. And I, I was saying, I call that the June and Johnny scenario because June Carter and, I'm sorry, June Carter Cash and Johnny Cash had that kind of relationship Ugh. that they tried for so many years to get together. And then when they finally did, she died at the beginning of the summer. And then he passed away a couple of months later. And it's called the widowhood effect. Yes. <clears throat> and, and it's I a very no real, I, I mean, it's sad to say, but please keep that family in your prayers and all of the victims. Because and we're going to do a tribute um, to the victims and talk about the victims and not about the asset that did this to these beautiful children. Um, can I can I can I say something about the asset for five seconds? I heard that the police have done some digging on his social media pages, and that he actually told a woman from overseas 
that he was going to do this. Why does somebody who just turned 18 need to buy an AK-47 rifle is beyond. And, and who sold it to him? And how many ammunition? I forgot the amount, but it's literally insane. Obviously, this was something he was planning, because what else are you doing with that much? I did see that NBC um, did a special last night on the, some of the safer schools in the country, and I think it was in an Indiana school. This school spent $400,000 on security measures, cameras all around the school that's directly linked live video to the police department. The nice. teachers wear around their necks um, panic buttons that Stop. they can close the um, locked it, like the teachers can lock the school down if they deem it necessary. They have controls in each classroom that goes directly to the police station. They can flip a switch and say if they are safe or need help. All of the doors are um, locked immediately when you um, enter and leave the, the room. So it's not like, oh, where's my keys? It immediately locks. Wow. Um, they also have smoke bombs that come out, that come down from the ceiling to trap a suspect in the halls and disorient them. Can somebody from our place, whatever that is, our state, I'm assuming, go talk to them? Can we go ask them what they did to save that money? Because I feel like we probably have that money somewhere. $400,000 to make that's not that much. one of the safest things in the in grand America. scheme of things. We can do it. Yeah, that's not that much in the grand scheme of things. For children's lives, people, that is not that much. All right, so unfortunately, we're going to be talking about some other children in tonight's episode, but there's a reason why I chose to not only do this episode, but continue even after the events of this week, and it's for the victims, because the victims, we can't forget about the victims. This case will infuriate you. It does involve children, so here's your trigger warning. But it is, I feel like it's necessary, especially because of what happened this week, because we're going to talk to um, this, uh, we're going to talk about these victims, and then I'm going to tell you at the end why I chose this case now. And um, I think you, you'll you understand once we get into it, but we have a lot to unpack. So I'm just going to jump right in, okay? Yes, ma'am. So first, I want to ask y'all a question. I've kind of been starting my cases off with a question. Yes, and I love it. Have you ever been a camp? Yes. I was going about to say, so I don't want to give away anything that we're about to talk about. Yes, I have been to the same type of camp. That these happened. Okay, Nicole, have you ever been to camp? Never. Okay, I was never went to camp as a camper, but I did go as a counselor. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Camp Abbey mm-hmm. in um, on the North Shore. Um, this is a camp run by um, the priests of the Abbey, <laughs> and um, the, the it's broken into two sessions of boys and then girls. We had cabins that we lived in. We did that for four weeks, and so every week there was a new New people, right? This camp, we had, I had the older kids, because, you know, I do well with the older kids, but this camp went from, like, 13 to as low as kindergartners or first graders, which seems like a lot, 
I'm not um, sending my kindergartner to a camp, sorry. That was my next question. At what age would you send your child away to camp? Upper elementary, high school. At the earliest, seven. when I went to camp, I went to camp when I was in like elementary or early middle school. Um, I went to Camp Marydale um, with my troop 222. We talked about that one in our first um, with the, the, you know, the troop that decided it was a good idea to bring a bunch of girls to the Myrtles, but we went with our parents, like my mom came with, and I would definitely not send my child. I don't even know if I would feel comfortable nowadays, honest to God, sending exactly. my child. Jacy's not going. <laughs> Never. I, I honestly to, don't. No, because I don't want her. <clears throat> I feel like I can't protect her in a no. situation like that, and I am I am aware of things that happen at places like that, and not it doesn't happen everywhere. But but still, it ain't ha- that is not happening the, with that situation the, with my child because I'm not allowing her to be in that nope. exact situation. Because all those so, people that are victims of this don't think that it's gonna be them. So, so absolutely not. This that we're talking about tonight is from 1977. This is the 1977 Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Um, and these girls range from eight to ten years old, and there were three girls, and they were at camp for two weeks. Okay, two now, weeks, two weeks. Now, before we, not. <clears throat> before we get into um the specifics, a couple of things that I want to say. Um, I there is a video on YouTube called "Someone Cry for the Children." I think that's a brilliant um title to just for this case and this week someone cry for the children it's narrated by pete wilkerson and johnny cash whom we were speaking about earlier it was made in 1981 so four years after these murders it's based on the book of the same name someone to cry someone cry for the children by dick wilkerson and michael wilkerson michael wilkerson was um a part of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. And um, he wrote the book, and then they made the documentary based on the book. And it has interviews with the counselors, the parents, and investigators who did this case. Wow. And it is phenomenal. So we'll link that later in case you want to go watch it. Um, so now our second episode just dropped this week um, on our podcast. And it was involving, if you don't remember, Zach and Addie. And Zach and Addie, um, we talked about how voodoo influenced, for those of you who haven't, go and listen to our podcast on true crime and creepy time. It can be found on any of your podcast platforms that you choose. But we talked in that case about voodoo influencing the actions of Zach. Did voodooism play a part in that tragedy? Okay, so this reminded me as I was researching a lot about that case because this time instead of voodoo, we're going to look at the Indians or the Native American culture. And this took place in Oklahoma, so it's in the middle of the United States. This case, um, we're I delved into this case, and a lot of podcasts have done this case. But I kind of went down another rabbit hole, and I want to bring about the 
Native American Indian part of this case because and see the role that it played with its customs and ceremonies. There's a lot of Native Americans, like I was saying, in the mid-U.S. around this area of Oklahoma. And as I was researching, it led me into very creepy incidences that went on in this case. For voodoo, remember we talked about how in the skeleton feet, you had to believe, once you became a believer, that's how the um, black magic attached to attached you. Attached to you. Right? Mm. So I well, want I those black-eyed children. Um, during this case, uh, the ancestral culture that's based on this case and the Native American ceremonies. And I want, my question to you is, after we finish, I want to know, do you think that Native American culture influence this case. Okay? So keep that. That's going to be our objective. Let me tell you a little bit about the camp. Well, well, let me back up. Let me just tell you what happened briefly and then I'm going to start with the camp. Okay? On June 13th, 1977 in Locust Grove, Oklahoma three little girls Laurie Former, eight years old Michelle Gousset, 9 years old, and Denise Milner, 10-year-old, was raped, strangled, and their bodies were mutilated and left under a tree 100 yards away from their tent. They were at Camp Scott in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Um, This was a camp that the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts had used for 50 years. It was 410 acres. They started in August 11th, 1928. So this had been 50 years. Kids had been coming to this camp to go camping for two weeks. So this camp was named for H.J. And they, it's H.J. Scott. They called him Scotty and his wife Florence. Now, his, their son had taken over property of the camp when this all happened. Um, but it was 410 acres and Boy and Girl Scouts volunteered throughout to host these campers that came in. So the counselors were Boys and Girl Scouts. That they themselves went to camp first and then yeah. became counselors after. Oh, I love that. That's, um, that's yeah. just the sweetest. And they started out with only 200 acres the Scott family had, but through donations and cookie sales of the Girl Scout cookies. Those damn cookies. They donated and bought the land that increased to twenty uh, 410 acres. And some of the activities that they would have, they had swimming, CPR training, archery, pathfinding, bridge building, bird studies, all of those outdoorsy things. Now, I am not an outdoors person. Hence why I didn't go to camp when I was young. But as a counselor, I loved every minute of it. There's trees all around covering this. Um, and for those four weeks that we were counselors there's now, but it was like you were in a little bubble. Yeah. And you were safe. And that's a, that a great way to put it. This place was literally magical because 
all of the world was out and it was a great time. It was, I was a sophomore and a junior and in college, but it was, there was a lot of stuff going on at that time in my life and it was a religious camp. So it, it was really a, a savior to like go away. Peaceful. Yes. A retreat. It was kind of a, a retreat, retreat, right? So I'm That's thinking, the word I was thinking of. As I'm, re- as I'm reviewing this, I'm thinking of my time at camp and what we would do and trying to bring it into this. So each part of Camp Scott was separated into seven different sites, okay? And they all had Native American names. The site that we're going to talk about, there was like a Cherokee tribe, and a, we're going to talk, talk about the Kiowa tribe, Kiowa tribe. Each unit in each of these tribes had seven tents and a counselor tent. Okay, I was wondering if it was cabins or tents. They're or tents. tents. Okay, tents. And when I, I say, they I'm not a tent got, girl. When I, say I don't tent, think they got uh, cabins until like almost when I was going. Honestly. I'm using tents very loosely. Because oh, they had right. two, they had some sticks and a, a, a piece. That's of what I'm saying. No, they was living in the wilderness. No, you know, no, earning your badges. No, no, literally a 12 by 14 platform that was kind of raised, and no, a canvas. Oh no, no, no. Mm-hmm. With a pole. I don't know if y'all can see that. Oh yeah, that's yeah, what I'm looking at. It was roughing it. A, a plywood with a canvas tarp like cover. I they mean, can't even, again, it, it wasn't even like a tent. Each tent had three to four campers in each tent. Okay. Now, if you research some of these people, some reports say that there was eight tents. Some reports say that there were seven tents. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the first tent was a counselor. Okay. The counselor tent, okay? And what happened was, so the counselor tent would start here, and all of the other tents would go in succession like a semicircle. So, like, if the counselor tent would be right here, it would be like this, okay? And in the middle, there was the bathrooms and um, shower area in the okay. middle. The problem with that is that... The in the tent... No, in the middle of the, the tents were all okay, surrounding okay. like sorry. a semicircle. Oh, sorry. From the bathrooms and the showers, right? The problem with this is that the tent that was furthest away, tent seven or eight, depending on how you, the seventh, um, camper tent, the eighth tent in this succession could not be seen by the counselors in tent one. You know that's the one that everybody's going to die in. It is. It has to be. I mean, because why not? True, true, true stuff. Because, um, so the girls arrived on the Sunday, um, June 12th, 1977. And they were split into their tribes. And as night fell, some thunderstorms rolled in. So this is really a scary situation. You have the woods. You have tents. You have dark and stormy nights. You have a Kiowa tribe who had 27 girls. And in Tent 8, or Tent 7, the 7th Camper tribe, you had four girls assigned to this tent that was furthest away from the counselors. Okay? Now, 
there were supposed to be four girls in this tent. But actually, due to a clerical error, mm. one of the girls was moved to another tent. Okay? That's God's plan. The four girls that were in this tent were our victims. Lori Former, eight years old. Denise Milner, 10 years old. And Michelle Gousset, nine years old. Okay. I don't like that these are the same kids we hang out with daily. The fourth girl, her name was Angela Sweet, and she, they had ran out of space in the tent that she was supposed to be in. And so when she first arrived, she went with the three, with the girls, and they like, she started unpacking and she got to know them and spent some time with them. And then somewhere in the night, uh, during, that time, like around dinner time, they found space for her in the tent that she was supposed to, so she was moved to another tent. Okay. Now, remember the tent eight or the tent or the seventh camper tent, um, in the Kiowa tribe was the farthest away from the counselor. Um, and there was not a counselor in each tent. Now, when I went in the cabins, each counselor, there was actually two counselors to a cabin, <coughs> and two cabins shared, two groups shared one cabin. So you had, like, one on this side and one on this side. So there was four adults in both of those cabins, and each cabin had junior counselors that would actually sleep with the kids in their area. Because they learned from this experience. So, I just wanted to, to give you a feeling how, how things things change. Okay? Now. Because things happen. Right. And that changes the course of whoever's life it interferes with. So, here are the victims of tonight's case. Lori Farmer was born on June 18, 1968 in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was five days away from her ninth birthday. She was living in Oklahoma with her parents, Sherry and Charles. They called him Bo Farmer, and he was a doctor. She had they she had recently moved. They had recently moved to Oklahoma. She had she was the oldest of three sisters and a brother named Chad. She was very highly intelligent. She had skipped the second grade. I want to say they said her IQ was like 135. So she was really smart, very pretty. What could she have done for us? Look, look on. I just, I just saw the girl. Beautiful. And when you see this, it's the epitome of 1977 little girls. Like, mm -hmm. I just, this is Brady Bunch people. I mean, <laughs> it's, she's beautiful and highly intelligent. She's the blonde. Yes. Uh, stop, she does look like a brainy bug. It's just, now, here's the thing that is heartbreaking. And as a mother, all of you moms out there, oh, this God. is going to tug at your heartstrings. So, oh, Lord. Um, this was supposed to be a fun summer activity that her mom, Sherry, had actually decided for her. She had the choice of going to Camp Scott as a Girl Scout or the YMCA camp. And she couldn't make a decision. So her mom made the decision to go to the camp for her. JC's never going to camp ever. <laughs> Creepers, you heard it here. 
her mom, Sherry, also decided which week of Pluto she would be going to. Sherry Farmer says, quote, I have to deal with that decision and that decision. I have to deal with that decision to send her to this camp and to send her that week. She says it's a mistake that still haunts her to this day. Oh, P.S. So this was Sunday that they went into camp. Saturday was Lori's birthday, like that the first, the end of the first week. And her parents were going to surprise her for her birthday on that Saturday. Our second victim is Michelle Heather Gousset, and she was born on July 22, 1977, in Miami, Oklahoma. She is from, um, she lived in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. She was nine years old, and she had one brother named Michael, and her parents are Richard and George Ann Gousset. Michelle was athletic and active. She was very shy, but also highly intelligent. She loved soccer and reading. Um, her mom said she would devour books. This was her second year at Camp Scott. She had already spent two weeks the year before. She loved flowers and she had some African violets. And she worried about her violets when she was going to camp. She asked her mom to take care of them while she was gone. And she told her mom that she'd miss her, but she'd also miss her flowers. Stop. (laughs) Her father, Richard, he said that he felt that Michelle knew that this was the last time that he, that she was going to see them because she gave kisses all around. And like I said, she was really worried about her flowers. And he just said that something inside of him told, told him he didn't want to listen to it, but that she was saying goodbye before she left. Oh my God. The last victim. And this one is one that kind of hit me hard. This is Doris Denise Milmer. She was 10 years old. She was born on February 5th, 1967. She was living in Tulsa with her parents, Betty Milner and Walter Milner. She had a five-year-old sister, Kathleen. She was also brilliant. Uh, straight A students. Um, she had recently been accepted to the prestigious school for exceptional children. So, um, and she went to Carver Middle School. I wonder if these three girls kind of clinged together because of their intelligence and their maturity. I was just thinking the same thing. We're going to find her Denise Miller. And she just looks so happy. She liked playing with her little sister. They were very close. She was very excited about being accepted to this school. She enjoyed watching TV. Um, like I said, she was very close with her sister. And she was worried about going to camp. She was very anxious. She had a lot of anxiety about going to camp. But she had more anxiety. Like, she didn't want to leave her sister. Oh. This was her first camping trip, and she paid for her to go buy selling Girl Scout cookies with her yeah. troop. And she was one of the only African Americans in the in the camp. She was the only African American um, little girl in this uh, tent and in the Kiowa tribe. She was very nervous about being without her mother and sister. Her mother's name was Betty. 
But her mom said that she needed to just go and try it out. It was going to be a new experience. She would be more independent. And if she had any problems, if she didn't like it, all she had to do was call and they would come and get her. And then also I found a story seeing that Denise had something intuitive because she kept saying that she didn't want to go. Didn't want to go. Um, and why would a kid not want to go to Girl Scout camp? Right. Well, after she saw cookies to go. I mean, one reason is that yeah. she had friends going with her, like the friends of her troop, but they backed out at the last minute. And I think that that made her a little bit more anxious about, because she did, she was shy. She didn't like to meet new people. How did those people would have been down there too in, in eight? The people that, the kids, the kids that didn't, that chose not to go. Well, she, she wouldn't have been in that group because if they, all four of them would have been together in another tribe because they went together. But when those kids backed out, she was kind of like, oh, the yeah, out, right. which we'll talk about okay. in a little bit. But um, remember I was saying like, there was something intuitive about she didn't want to go. Here's something interesting. She had some kind of intuition going on. And then her five-year-old sister, Kathleen, also had something. But remember we talked about in our first episode about ghosts and how little kids can see Mm -hmm. ghosts because they're closer to that spiritual realm? Mm -hmm. Well, Kathleen asked her mom the day that Denise left, what happens when people die? And her mom explained you know, about death. And she asked, what if everyone dies? And her mom said, well, that's not going to happen because there's people being born every day. And, you know, if people die, there's new, new life every day. And then she told her mom, mama, tomorrow, everyone's going to die. Okay. So I will keep her home. (laughs) We're not going anywhere and we're not touching knives or anything. Oh, sharp off. We're sitting in a padded room. So that is our definitely a padded room, Jeff. Oh. Padded room. Nobody's touching anything. We're eating very soft foods, probably potatoes. <laughs> oh my god! I know. Creepy. So now let's go back to before the camp started, because before the camp started back in April, there was a training session for the counselors. Okay. In April of 1977, two months before camp started, a counselor named Michelle Hoffman returned to her tent and found that her suitcases were thrown outside and her bags were thrown around. Her tent had been ransacked, okay, two months before. She also had a box of donuts for the counselors, and it was empty. And inside the um, box of donuts was a note. And the note said, kill, kill, kill. It was written in a notebook, the first through third pages. So for three pages, it wrote, kill, kill, kill. And it was in all caps. Also in all caps was this, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Now, if you had this situation, you walk into your tent, you're a counselor, there's woods all around you. You see your stuff ransacked and thrown about, you find this note in a donut box, what would you do? 
I get the hell out of Dodge. When I saw K-I-L, I didn't have to see a second L. Done. Out. So, moving on. She, Michelle, brought it to the camp director, who, her name is Barbara Dick. And she assumed that someone was playing a prank, that some counselors um, had later claimed that they wrote the note. Later on, when the police asked about, you know, the count, the one of the counselors told the police, well, in April, I found this note and I brought it to the director. And the police asked Barbara Day about the note and she said she threw it away. She said she didn't know <clears throat> that the tent was ransacked <clears throat> and nothing was done with this note. I'm just going to leave that there. So, Michelle was the counselor that was sitting next to Denise Milner on the bus. She said that she was very nervous, but like I said, she was leaving her family for the first time, and her mom got on the bus and assured her that she didn't like it, just try it. But she reassured she could call her, and they would come and pick her up. Michelle Sapphire told her all about camp and that her favorite tent of all time was tent number eight because it was close to the back. When the girls got to camp, they unpacked. And remember, Angela was the fourth girl in their tent. And they spent time around the campfire. And then a thunderstorm, they went to eat um, supper in the Great Hall. They called it a Great Hall. And there was a thunderstorm and it started raining. So the counselor said, go to your tent and write letters home to your parents. Okay, get to know your bunkmates and start writing letters home. I have to mention that while the girls were getting um, settled, they Mm -hmm. made friends or whatever. And then they started, they went to the bathroom together. You know how, how women are, but, um. But when the four girls, because I'm including Angela in this, when they went to the bathroom to, like, check that out and use the bathroom, they had seen three flashlights in the woods. And this, I'm assuming, is coming from Angela. And then during this time, Angela found, they found space for Angela, and she was moved out of that group into another tent. So, the girls wrote three letters. I'm going to read you the letters from the three girls. Here is Lori Farmers, because, again, this is about the victims. Here is Lori Farmers' letter to her parents at camp. Dear Mom, Dad, Misty, Joe, and Kathy, we're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Dennis and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started raining on the way back to dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. Okay. This is 10-year-old I'm sorry, nine-year-old Michelle um, Gousset. Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I'm fine. I'm, which kills me because I used to always start my letters with that. How are you? I am fine. I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's stormy. Me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Former. My room is 
shades of purple. Love, Michelle. I love that. Alright, now, this one's heartbreaking, so if you need to go ahead a little bit, you have a trigger warning. This is from Denise Milner, 10-year-old Denise Milner. Dear Mom, I don't like him. It's awful. (laughs) The first day it rained. I have three new friends named uh, Linda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Mm. A few hours later, Denise would be found dead. Now we're going to get into that night. Okay. Um, and again, I understand if you have, because I'm giving a trigger warning. This does have to do with children. So if you need to scoot ahead a little bit, totally understand if you're watching this one replay. For those of you who, who are watching live, thank you. But if you need to duck out, we understand. So around 1.30 a.m., this is on the early morning of June 13, 1977, another counselor from the Comanche tribe, the Comanche tribe was another of those um, seven tribes that they broke up in. They were doing their checks on their tent, and they saw a dim light in the woods along the tree line surrounding the camp. So the way that the tribes are is like they're kind of like scattered, and they go all along, and I'll show you a picture, but they go all along this road, like the road is in the middle, mm-hmm. and the tribes mm-hmm. are around the this road, okay? And the woods are around the kingdom, okay? Now, remember, the girls saw flashlights in the woods when they went to the bathroom, and at one thirty, this counselor saw flashlights from the tree line. She pointed her flashlight in, in that direction because no one should have been in that area, and the lights disappeared. Uh, she waited a few moments, and she saw the light moving northwest. Now, in the video that I told you, the documentary at the beginning, they interviewed this counselor, Carla Will- Willity. Um, she was 18. She said that she heard noises coming from the outside of a tent. Okay, so like she got up in the middle of the night because she heard noises as well. And she describes them as kind of guttural noises. She said it really didn't sound human or an animal. I think I, I think I still heard some kids. I don't know. She said she went to check on the tents and all was quiet. So she went back to bed. So we have two different counselors hearing these sounds. Okay. Other counselors from other uh, units heard the sounds throughout the night as well. Um, Susan um, Ewing was 18 and D. Elder was 20. Um, they testified that sometime during the night they actually heard screams coming from the woods. Now, also on this night, tent flaps were taken off the hook. So you saw in the pictures, like, the, t- the flaps come, like, down. And they had, like, a hook on the end that you could put them up so that you could enter and exit. Those were taken off the hook. 
However, more than one person said that purses were stolen, eyeglasses were stolen in the middle of the night, and a couple of weeks before camp started, or it might have been in that um, April session with the counselors, that the back of one of the one of the tents was slashed, like cut open. So, and the reason why I'm telling you all of this is that stuff was going on before the before the kids came, okay, and no one did going. anything about it. That's exactly where I'm at with that. <clears throat> in another unit, in the Quapaw uh, unit and Cherokee her- unit, they also heard. So now we have four or five different tribes hearing. Noises, screams, seeing flashlights in the woods. Okay. But one from the Quapaw unit or the Quapaw tribe heard a little girl crying. And later she would say that it sounded like Lori Farmer crying because she remembered she had cried for her mom another time. And, Mm -hmm. but she definitely heard someone screaming, Mama, Mama. So, I know the first thing that y'all are thinking of is why didn't they do it? But what could they have done? Well, here's the thing. You have to remember the time. It was 1977. Right. Totally different time than what we're talking about now. I don't really think that they could even fathom what was happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Screams. I don't think that they had it in their 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old minds that danger could be lurking around. Right. Right? Because they were kids themselves. Well, in the 70s, I mean, people were hitchhiking. Right. But it was such a different time. Right. Hitchhiking, free love, everybody was... Right. And it was a You knew everybody. Time. It was a very peaceful time. And nobody, nobody would think thought awful that stuff, stuff like this would happen. happen. Especially in a camp that had been going on for 50 years. <laughs> Now, and it could have been that because they were so young, they were scared. I mean, right. they didn't want to investigate. That's what you said, that they were... They didn't want to think they're about females, that. females, you know, 18, 19-year-old, they did something. Right. Would you investigate if you... Hell no. Right. I am That's not. That's a definite no for me, I'm dog. scared. I get scared of a snake. So, between the timing, <laughs> how young they are... And then also, I really do feel that they just weren't qualified enough. No. And like they didn't have other they adults with them? No. No, because back then this is what they did. Right. Now we this would have normal. Like real adults. We'd right. have like counselors and then we'd have like real adults. Right. They didn't really have the training or even the protocol to follow. Of they didn't what have 911? Right. Yeah, like. And I don't, like I said, I really don't think that they registered right. what no. was happening. Like, I think after, when they were questioned, they were like, oh, my God. But, mm-hmm. like, in the moment, they were probably just like, oh, I hear crying. Someone probably just misses their mom. Right. You know? Like, it wasn't a... They never thought. That right. wasn't it. Now, another incident around one thirty. So, it, again, all of this happened between, like, midnight and 3 a.m. So... A lot of it said it was about one thirty, but it could have just been because that's that middle yeah, time that, that this could have happened. Um, but another girl reported that she was actually woken up to a flashlight shining into her face. And that was at um, tenth seven. 
So it would have been the sixth tenth of seventh in the row, but sixth kid tenth. The next morning around 6 a.m., this, the counselor, Carla Willity, had set her alarm to wake up because she wanted to be the first in the shower. And in the documentary, she describes it as beautiful. She says the sun was just breaking, the air was crisp and chilly. And as she gets up to go to the shower, she sees off the road, she noticed some sleeping bags off the side of the road. No. Now, her first thought that they were either left there by a camper or that the bags had been delivered. People left bags on the bus, and instead of going to where they were supposed to go, they just dropped them right there on on the road. Again, location. Right. This was 100 yards away, so a football field away from Tent 8. A football field. I wasn't thinking it was that. Okay. Right? So, where the girls were, 100 yards away, on a road. Yeah, How she even could tell that sleeping bags? Well, I think, like, she saw something, and as she walked to investigate, she saw that it was sleeping bags. Now, yeah. I'm going to give you a trigger warning, because this is, but I, I need to tell you the whole story, okay? As she walked up to what she thought was sleeping bags, she found Denise Milner's body in laying on top of the sleeping bags. So there was three sleeping bags, and Denise Milner was laying on top. Okay, She was naked, and she had been beaten to death. Her hands had been taped behind her back. She was gagged and sexually assaulted, so she was displayed. But the other girls were in the sleeping bags. Okay? Oh, okay. So... So she sees Denise, and she sees that obviously something has happened. She has not, she does not go into the sleeping bags to see that the other girls are there. She just knows that Denise is on top. And I'm assuming that she also thought that the rest was just regular sleeping bags. Yeah. So she runs to tell the director, Barbara Day. I mentioned her before. And Barbara Day, the director of Camp Scott, called the police. She also called, she said she needed three ambulances. So at some point, they, I don't know why she said she needed three, unless when the police, it was after the police arrived, mm-hmm. and they looked in the sleeping bags, that they re- realized they had three victims. But wishful thinking, maybe, just being like, hopefully they're, you know, just be medical attention type thing. Maybe. Um, I just well, thought it was... Seven, that, that may be how they... I just thought it was weird that she ordered three ambulances. Yeah. So, the police arrive on, this, on the scene and uh, immediately know that they need Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. This is... I'm going to refer to them as OSBI, for sure. Okay? Now, and Denise on top, remember, and she was... On top of the sleeping bag, she was beaten and spread. She was gagged and bound. And the police noticed that the gag that was in her mouth was sunk. So we are talking about someone premeditation here because they brought a gag that had been sewn together in order to gag someone. You understand what I'm saying? Because they've been sneaking up in tent stealing stuff this whole time. 
And when the investigators began investigating, they assumed, based on their evidence, that Lori and um, Michelle were killed first. They were killed first in their tent. In the documentary, a lot of they inve- they talked to the investigators, and one of the investigators, I believe it was Michael Wilkinson, who wrote the book, said that he remembers that vultures began circling around while they were out there because they could smell the death. And when they found Lori, she did not have any ligatures, so she didn't have anything around her neck or her hands. She didn't have any tape. She wasn't taped up like Denise. Her panties were pulled off to the side, and they assumed that she had been sexually um, assaulted. But they did find out later through the autopsy that she was not raped. They determined that she was the first one killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Okay. And they said that Lori just looked like she was sleeping. Like you wouldn't have thought that she was dead. The police said that it was just a sweet, innocent little girl sleeping. Like you wouldn't have known anything. Okay. And that's the first one you talked about. Yes. The blonde. Yes. Okay. Now, the other two, their body, they had a excessive force used on them. And and I'm sorry to be so graphic, but there's a reason why I, I, I'm right. Right. Okay. So, in their tent, there was, the tent was covered in blood. Okay. But it had signs of showing that someone had tried to clean up the blood with the bed sheets from the cot and the mattress covers that was on the cot, okay? So they think or they thought at the time that someone came in from the back of the tent, uh, because remember, this is just drapings, right? Right. (laughs) Right. Back of the tent, they hit Lori first, Mm -hmm. okay? So she instantly dies. Mm Mm-hmm. Then they go to Michelle and killed Michelle. They did sexually assault Michelle. And I'm wondering if race played a part in this. I was thinking that. Remember, Denise was the African-American little girl. Which was splayed out. She was splayed out. She was on top. She was beaten brutally. So I, I, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering if she, if there was a race card put in. And you're going to see why when we start, when we find some more evidence. So, someone had tried to clean up the scene. They, and they used the sheets and the mattress covers from the bed. And then they took those and they stuffed them in the sleeping bags. They also, on, found a bloody shoe print in the Mm. tent. Size nine and a half. Now, what they also found was that So, Michelle and Denise had both been sexually assaulted, but Denise had been dragged in and killed in the woods. Her cause of death was ligature strangulation. Mm -hmm. So, she was strangled with a ligature and tied, kind of like hog tied in a way, with and gagged with a a, a sewn gag. Her gag was sewn. They also found next to the bodies nylon rope, duct tape, and a big square flashlight. And 
I say that because when you think of flashlight, you might think of one like a, a circular one. But my dad had one like this. The big red flashlights. It looks like a square. You know what I'm talking about? Like the big ones? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. No, no, no. Like, mm-hmm. Right? It's made of plastic and it's like when yeah. you mm-hmm. it, like the big battery. So, but here's it, an interesting thing. The flashlight, the lens was covered. Okay, so think about a flashlight, okay, shining its beam, but so the lens is sunlight. covered and there was a small hole poked in the middle. And it was covered with tape and a pin, just a pinhole was shining through. Now, okay. this was to reduce the light. Yeah. I didn't want to be seen. So it would be a smaller light if someone had, it wouldn't have looked like a flashlight. It was right. a beam. It would, would have been a smaller, it would have been less light. Like a laser beam, like with a, the little red laser. Right. Yeah. Right. Something like that. Maybe a little bit bigger so they could actually receive, but the point was was that he was covering the light so it so to make it not conspicuous. Okay. I hope these suckers burn alive. In the flashlight, remember, because I told you there it's one of those big batteries and the flashlight's made of plastic. So every time you would move, uh, you would hear the battery rumble. Yeah. Okay. Rattling. So there was newspaper found stuck in, like, in the battery, so it would have been quiet. It would have been quiet to lessen oh, that. Very, very prepared. This person is uh, very pre- prepared. This is premeditated at its core definition. Also, around the body, they found several pairs of glasses, and these had actually been stolen from another tent. Remember, I, I was thinking that, that was one of the things that people were, were stealing. They also, in the vicinity, found a crowbar, which they believe to be the murder weapon, three empty bottles of beer. Okay. okay. When this happened, the camp was immediately closed. So think about this. Ambulances come. They're, the girls are determined to be dead. Police are on the scene. OSBI is on the scene investigating. The mm-hmm. camp was immediately closed, and the kids were packed up, and they got on buses to return back to headquarters in Tulsa. Here's the thing, and I want you to think about the parents in Texas this week. They were called to come and pick up their kids, the parents of the other campers, the whole camp, okay? But they weren't told what happened. They were told that there was an at camp, and that they had to come to Tulsa and pick up their kid. They also were not told which girls were in the accident. So, the parents only found out once they got there to pick up the kids. Can you imagine making that drive to Tulsa? You don't know. Again, parallel with the parents from this week, because they had to Wait to find out if their kid was alive or dead. I just read that a little while ago. That um, they know that there was an accident, but you at least we'll say with these parents, they don't know what happened. Accident at a camp, drowning, swimming, you know, fire, something, broken leg, broken arm. Now the fourth girl that was in the tent, right, Angela. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she was on the bus. She remembers being on the bus going to Tulsa. 
And what they did was one by one, they called out the girls' names. Their parents, they're on the bus. Their parents are waiting for the girls to come off the bus. And they're calling out their names one by one. I don't even know if the people who were doing this knew, like, if this was, like, you know how when we have a fire drill, we have to count for kids. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a number to get in number order, so you just count. I don't even think that they knew who was in the accident, like the people there, the counselors there, because there was, they, that's why they were count, they, that's why they were calling them off one by one to see who was missing and who was still there. But anyway, so Angela's on the bus and when they called her name, she had dropped something and she hadn't heard her name called until the third time that they called her name. And her mother was outside on the bu- uh, outside of the bus, her mom and dad, and her mom had dropped to her knees because they had called her name three times and her daughter wasn't coming off of the bus. And she thought that Angela had been a victim. But she almost was. Right. So that's, that's the crazy creepy that's part. Creepy. That's creepy. stuff, the way that stuff happens. Now, when Angela found out who the girls were, it was in the next day, the next day in the newspaper, and she told her mom that she was supposed to be sleep in that tent, tent eight that night. And you know that that mom just freaked out and sat down and cried. And she still, to this day, Angela thinks and questions why her life was saved that night. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. Now, when I tell you about, when I tell you that the other parents had to be called and said to come and get your kids, I'm also talking about the victims' families. Right. I want to know about this. The camp director called the victims' families. The camp director started calling, but they were the third call that they made. The victim's families later found out that the first call that the camp made, the director made, was to the attorney. I'm sorry, to the insurance company. The next call was to their attorneys. The third call was to parents. So, they were trying to cover their ass before they were called. Now, I did hear somewhere that Lori Former's parents were told by the emergency contact person because they were at work and they couldn't get in touch with Lori or Sherry and Bo. So they called their emergency contact and she had to tell them that their daughter had died. Because they couldn't go get Lori. Well, yeah, yeah. Now, the other families actually found out from the news. Michelle and Denise's thing found out from the news. Okay. Um, but also the parents weren't told what happened to their kids. They were just told that there was an accident and they were the victims of the accident. Now they didn't have social media back then and the news wasn't crazy like it is now. So I wonder how long this took actually to happen. Right. So, uh, Bo Farmer, this is Lori's dad said that uh, he was never told that the girls were found dead outside of a tent, and he was never told that it was a violent. Like, he never was told that his daughter was murdered or any details. They couldn't even tell him what she had for supper. It was, like you said, social media, but you know today things <clears throat> are um, held 
four to cover their asses. And so they didn't Mm want to give out too much information to the parents that could come back and say, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't do this, this, this. But there were a couple of things that the parents uh, of the girls said in their interviews on this, the documentary that I watched. So I told you about Lori's mom being the one who decided, but Michelle Gusset's parents said that when the police knocked on the door, they just told her that there was a problem with Michelle. Oh, God. And they asked to come in and sit down and talk about the accident at camp. So they were never, like I said, they weren't told what had happened. She had never told that her daughter had been murdered. Now, Richard Doucet said that they found out from the news of the way that his daughter died. Can you imagine finding... This is like, remember when we did Lauren Giddings? You and I did Lauren, Laura, uh, Lauren Giddings together. And the uncle, her uncle, found out from the media that they had found a body and then told the parents, how are you doing? Well, they just found a body. Like, the, the parents didn't know. It's the same thing, which is totally disrespectful. I yes, believe. absolutely. Like, if something happens, just tell mm-hmm. me so that I can prepare. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have police coming into my house to tell me there was an accident and deal with that grief, then to deal with the grief that my child is dead, then to deal with the grief about how she died. It would have just, to me, it seems a, a way better to... I remember when my mom died suddenly, uh-huh. and the nurse said, come in this room. And I said, no, just tell me what's going on, because I felt it. I right, knew. Right. And she was like, no, come sit in the room. And I was like, I don't want to sit in the room. Just tell me. And they were like, but the doctor has to tell you. Right. But you know, right. I mean, awful. These I, I just find it so disgusting mm-hmm. that they had to find. They out. called the insurance company. They called the attorney, and then the parents to cover their. So even back in the simpler times, right. in the 1970s, it was all about CYA bitches. Right. Always, right? I want a sound bite of that ringing. Okay, CYA bitches. CYA bitches. Okay, we'll make that a T-shirt. <laughs> Thank you for bringing the levity because it, this has kind of been. Ooh, I'm fixing a light. I'm fixing a light. Well, say we're, we're about ready. We're going to go and we'll save this, um, mm-hmm. for, for another day. A few things that I want to say before. Now, Richard Doucet also was saying that the press was obnoxious. It was a media frenzy, obviously. This, you know, very high profile case, but they were on his lawn and his property. Now, again, this is 1977. He said that the press was obnoxious on his knocking on their door, um, and they were asking for a picture because they wanted to show it in the news, um, in the profile, like for their B-roll or whatever, to the point that he had stepped out into his, his back porch and People and the news media was like hanging from their porch with a microphone asking for a comment or whatever. 
and he they asked them for pictures, and he didn't want to give up a good picture of Michelle. Now, before we end tonight, we're going to have to do this, maybe finish it up in the next couple of days. I don't want to leave this too far, especially for it being so this week. This needs to, I need to get this out, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. Again, this is a very, there's a specific reason why I, we need to do, we needed to do this tonight, but I'm not yeah. going to tell you that until the end. Okay. Um, but before we leave, I just want to tell you, remember, I told you that this was going to involve some Indian culture, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Or Native American culture. I dealt, dove, I went down the rabbit hole on that. Okay. And I found that, and this is in the documentary, Someone Cry for the Children. The grounds of Camp Scott was not always a, a Girl Scout camp. And the legend in the Native American culture is that, th- that the place where Camp, camp Scott was, mm-hmm. was sacred ground. There was to form this area there was a swift water running through and it kind of like cut its way through the rock and made this area where the camp was which made lots of caves within the rock mm. and it, it was like they described it as um, the creator scooping out a portion of the land the you know the river had had made a road but the native americans in the area the locals they called this the hollow because of the creator scooping it out kind of made it very hollow but also and very holy that exact so this was very sacred during these times there was a magic that existed as long as man had existed in this place. This is what the culture believes. Mm-hmm. And it held a natural power. And only a chosen few could access this power in this land. Those were the medicine men from that were in the Native American culture. They were called medicine men. Now, in the documentary, they interviewed a medicine man known as Crying Wolf. And actually, one of the te- the detectives from the OSBI, Agent um, Harvey, was a Native American of the area. The suspect that they had, who they think committed these murders, was full-blooded Native American. So when oh. I tell you about the creepy aspects of this, I say creepy just the way that things unfolded. Unfolded, yeah. But there is, you have to appreciate the Native American um, significance of that culture in this case because there's some things that you just can't explain mm. about the case. I cannot wait to hear okay. this. <laughs> We're going to stop right there just because we had a lot tonight and it's been a hell of a week. And again, there's a reason why I need to, number one, I need to get this out because I've been sitting with this for about three or four weeks doing the deep dive. But there's a very important reason why it needs to be this week. And, and that also has to do with the Native American culture. Oh, exciting. So, but I'm going to stop it right there because I don't want to, I think it's kind of heavy. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we need a, a break and a palate cleanser. Um, now that you know kind of what we're talking about. But creepers, when I say you want to come back for more, I, I, I don't want to say too much, but there's so much more. This is not an open and shut case. And it never is. Okay. That's one reason. But the second reason when I took the deep dive in the culture and researched some of the things that was happening, it takes this case on a whole nother level. Oh, no, no. We, we're right in an hour and a half. Now you see why I needed to start on time. And, yes. and there's a lot of unpacking again, but I need to stop it right here. Just as a cap, I, I can feel the heaviness. Can you feel the heaviness? Yeah. We're going to need to sage and then we'll come back. So I will say this, y'all. I've listened to a lot of podcasts and so have these wonderful ladies. I feel like we do such a great job at our rainy does a great job at telling the backstory. Like I've, heard a lot of these cases but i don't know all of this like you go into i mean like sibling like to just the day you like telling siblings and the family and like all about and storyteller right like it, it helps storyteller to keep it in touch stuff. um well thank you jess i appreciate that and creepers i hope that that you see I spend a lot of time on these cases because yeah. I feel like that's the only way to do the victims justice. Yes. Like as heinous as the crime is, people need to know what happened to them. What how they died. This this and this is why I wanted this podcast not only to be like kind of a teaching tool of what not to do. That's why we give you tips on how not to get murdered. Number one way not to get murdered, don't hitchhike and don't sign your life insurance policy over to anybody. But um, also, but also to honor the victims of, yes. of the, you know, I don't want to sensationalize their death. I want to remember and honor them. Use their story to prevent another Later. story from happening. So that's why I go deep and I, like, in, especially with this case with the kids, it yes. literally tore me apart to hear all that happened and we're still not finished because stuff will come out but i think it's important i just think it's important to to tell their stories so yes. like I and said, it makes I, the story so much better like it just because it's, it's, it's not just hard. saying the story you mm-hmm. know like there's so many things in this world that you just say the story like they just tell the story and you just and it like kind of becomes monotonous and you're like oh right. yeah i already know about that but right. i'm trying to bring a different side i guess to the stories that we tell because to honor the victims and say yes. this is what it's happened. all about the victims yeah now. right so for all of you who subscribe to our podcast thank you thank you thank you please share thank you, thank you. Um, yes. share subscribe and review we'll Sounds find it and don't forget them. to follow us on the ticky talkies and instagram at true underscore crime underscore chats with an s do you want to say the email our email is creeperschat at gmail.com. And um, please share and invite people into our group. And then also um, share and invite people to download our podcast. So go ahead and hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. But until then, creepers, just remember to keep on creeping on. And we'll see you next week.